the meditation today is about being centered in present realities. Our lesson is about being able to move with the inspiration from your inner self. And so Swamiji is drawing from Master's poem, Samadhi, these lines, present, past, future, no more for me, but ever-present, all-flowing, I, I, everywhere. I swallowed, transmuted all into a vast ocean of blood of my own one being. Swamiji suggests to us then, we meditate on the concept of time, not merely as a continuum, but as a complete illusion. Space and time are merely a product of consciousness, of being in motion, meaning if we move away from the present stillness within, then we get caught up in the concepts of time and space, very subtle. So what we want to do for just a moment here, past, present, no more for me, but ever-present, all-flowing, I, I, everywhere. Feel yourself as deeply as possible. Just sink into a center point of stillness. Now affirm with me, I am no free man or free woman merely. I am a free soul. I am no free man or free woman merely. I am a free soul. I am no free man or free woman merely. I am a free soul. I am no free man or free woman merely. I am a free soul. Om peace. Amen. Nirmal, would you mind shutting that just for the noise? Thank you. Okay, great souls. We are on Lesson 24. What should your line of work be? Um, We have 24, 25, 26. We have three lessons. We have four Tuesdays left in September. So even giving the chance for something to happen, I think we're actually going to finish this class, this course, right within the time frame. Quite amazing, since we didn't really figure it out that well. Um, I've also read ahead, and I think probably each of these lessons will be just one. The last 26 might be two, two weeks, but we'll see what happens. So, now, when we see this title, What Should Your Line of Work Be? I actually, myself, studying the whole lesson, it took me a while to figure out where Swami was really going with it, because... I naturally started thinking things like um, Taylor Baker, candlestick maker, just very specific ideas. And he reminds us that in previous lessons, and he touches on it again, he talked about being able to look back at your childhood and seeing what kind of attitudes and interests you had as a very young child, as as he describes it, to be able to distinguish between the inclinations you were born carrying and those that were imposed upon you by the environment. And that was much more about your own natural talents and things like that. This is much more talking about um, 
more the qualities that we want to have in the work that we do and the attitudes and qualities we want to express through the work that we do. Because this whole course about, you know, um, manifesting material success and happiness, it's a, it's a complex interplay between really learning these ideas and methods for, for influencing the material world and it's also realizing that material success alone is not the same as happiness and that the two things have to work together. And you have to have a lot of um, confidence in the energy Swamiji is, is encouraging us to have here, really, in, in order to make this work. I'm very interested in the fact that I, uh, because I'm going to be part of the effort in Los Angeles to some extent, I don't know to what extent yet, but I, my mind has been thinking about a new project. And it's, uh, at least I, I'm very impressed by how much I've learned in this course. Um, it's, it's really um, my whole feeling about the capacity to manifest has shifted. And I have a, a sort of a greater sense um, that is not as mysterious as it used to be to me. And I, I sincerely hope that others of you have at least some of that because I'm quite, I was saying to David, I'm quite proud of myself. I think I've really learned a lot. I, I took up teaching this course because, of course, when you have to immerse yourself in something strongly enough to explain it, um, you always learn it on a deeper level, and that's always been a, a great side effect of teaching. And, uh, but it's, uh, I can really see, I can really feel in myself, and I guess I'm giving a little testimony that if we stick with studying this course, and of course studying it to teach it was by no means the first time I'd read it, but that if, if one keeps returning either to the audio or the written portion of this, and you can now, once you've been through it once, you can sort of look for different ones of them that seemed highlights to you, I really do feel that we can shift our consciousness in ways that are going to be ex- extremely beneficial. Um, as I said when I very first started this class, this is uh, from Swamiji. This is an autobiographical explanation of how he started with nothing at the age of 36 and created what he has, all that he has created, which is a phenomenal worldwide, a worldwide phenomenon would be actually the way to say it. In fact, for some of the um, advertisement for this course, uh, one of the things that we wrote was, if Swamiji had done it for himself his capacity to manifest would have been, he would have made him among the most respected, you know, materialists in the world. But the fact is he manifested it and then just passed all the money away and and made the service instead. But it really is phenomenal and the, the principles are all right here. And even more deeply, there's a consciousness of that if we live in tune with these higher principles and put our energy out in, in humble sincerity that there's, there's just a force that will carry us and that we just need to keep working with that. Swamiji made a statement once that all failure is a lack of attunement. And I had a, a little difficult time with that because of just other ideas I kept inserting over it. Like, isn't it your karma sometimes to fail? Well, yes, it may be your karma to fail so that you'll realize that you're not quite in tune. <laughs> And then you can uh, get a better sense of attunement. But what, what he's really saying is that just that there's a divine flow to everything. And, um, and also failure is uh, 
a relative statement. If things don't work out in the way that you're trying to make them work out, then you just keep at it until you get in tune enough to make it happen. Remember that story that Master tells about wanting to paint the portrait of Lahiri Mahashaya because he was so displeased with the one the artist had done. And it took him about a week to get in tune with what he was doing enough to be able to make the portrait. But that's all he had to do. He just had to find in the universe that vibration that would make him an artist and then he could, be, then he could paint. It's, and that's sort of what I feel like Swami is saying, all failure is a lack of attunement. We have to just keep moving until we find the vibration that sufficiently resonates with our own that then the movement of energy will be dynamic in whatever direction we're trying to go. Does that make sense? It's, anyway, it's, it's wonderfully interesting to talk about. Now, what Swami's talking about here, he begins by wanting to straighten out a few misconceptions that people sometimes have. And part of that is, he, 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 he emphasizes the fact that we do have natural temperaments. And we do have sort of inclinations that we just flow in one direction and not in another. And that those things are not necessarily just challenges to our willpower for us to be able to overcome. And he's, he, he emphasizes that spiritual perfection is not the same as personality perfection or perfection in the material world. One of my friends, um, Paula, uh, who's now passed into the astral world, um, she was a, a very great saint and she um, great soul, and she died really in a state of grace. She never really got her financial situation straightened out. And in fact, just not long before she died, she'd had to declare bankruptcy. Um, it was partly the circumstances of her life and various things like that. But she just wasn't good at that side of life. But she was very, very good at surrendering to God. And she died, you know, in a, as I said, in a true state of grace, consciously and with chanting God's name. It was an extraordinary death for all of us who were there because a number of us were there with her when she passed on. But the whole side of money and just sort of being practical in this world on a certain level, she could never do. But just to give you an idea of the temperament she had, when they built the Serenity House at the Expanding Light, which is, I don't know if it's 10 or 12 bedrooms or 8 bedrooms, whatever it is, there, there were a number of bedrooms, 8 to 12 bedrooms and a few living rooms and things like that. Paula went from Ananda village in near Grass Valley to Sacramento in a shame back with her. She just had that flow. In her left gift, she just visualized room by room and tuned into master and just came back and the, everything was lovely. She was the buyer for a long time for a store that we had and uh, Latika was her partner and Latika was, is a financial manager. Bar, Paula would just walk through and pick out like this, and then Latika would go carefully through and make all the orders. I was with Paula in India, and she was shopping, uh, I think for a store at that point. In just the same way, you saw her, she, almost literally, she would sort of go into a slightly altered state of consciousness, and then she would just know what to pick from that point of view. Now, um, that's doing what a person is born to do. You know, there's just like a talent there that just flows, and it was better for her not to put her in the side where she had to try to pin her mind down to the dollars and cents because it really just didn't work for her. So she, she capitalized on what she had. Swamiji tells us the story of trying to be a carpenter, you know, mixing cement and doing things with his hands and so on. And just, he was just never good at it. Things that had forced him to get dirty. He just never could relate to that level of being. I recall reading a charming story about another man, though, who talked about 
the progressive disintegration of his enjoyment of his work, he traced to the degree of how dirty he was allowed to get. When he did a work where he came home filthy every night, he loved it. And then he gradually got promoted, and the cleaner and cleaner he came home at night, the more and more unhappy he was. (laughs) It was just completely the opposite. It just wasn't his temperament to be all prim and buttoned down. He just needed to get back where he could really be where he is. So part of it, Swamiji is, is just telling us, is be who you are. And then he gives us more guidelines for understanding who we are. Now, we don't always have the freedom to just choose. And there's been a lot of other lessons in which we've talked about all the different things that you can do when you see that this is my karma and I can't escape it. So we're not really talking about that. We're talking now about trying to get in tune with what works for us. But then what we find is that what Swami mostly talks about is how to have the right attitude so that you can both attract and express yourself in the way that's appropriate. Swami goes on to say that right livelihood from the point of view of yoga is that work which helps you to expand your consciousness and not merely that work which is fruitful for you or even not even necessarily that work you enjoy. Swamiji speaks sometimes, he said, sometimes a person, he used Elvis Presley as an example. Elvis Presley had such an extraordinary talent to be a singer and then to be a celebrity and a movie star. But look how miserably unhappy his life turned out to be. Was it really in his best interest to have followed that talent? Um, he said he can talk about maybe a person has a talent to be an actor or an actress or something like that. But is it if it leads to great egotism and bondage and pride of position, is it really a good thing to follow that talent? So it isn't only a question of what you're able to do. It's also a question of what kind of um, consciousness is brought out of you when you do it. And some things are just too much of a temptation to draw you into wrong consciousness. So your talent for them is not really what you should do. Maybe some people are very talented even at you know, earning money in certain ways that they can just do it. But it's not really something they ought to do. I mean, I know some friends of mine are talented in gambling, but they don't do it. <laughs> because it doesn't, you know, they just have the karma to win, but, and they know how to, how to win at cards and so on, but obviously it's just not going to be something they want to do. Ironically, a friend of mine told me that her nephew spent a summer playing poker online and has paid for his entire law school doing that. Just strange karmas that people have. I don't know whether it's talent, but... How, what a strange world we live in where you can just spend the summer in your apartment. I read about some other young men who sort of started making a whole lot of money just gambling online. But then they just realized that even though they were making a lot of money, exactly what Swami's saying, it was horrible work. <laughs> and they just didn't enjoy anything about it. So they just repudiated it and put it aside. But those are very good examples of things that, well, in the, man, the case of the law school man, school man it was a, I think it was just a fluke, but um, but the other young men, you know, they just found themselves able to make money so easily. But the consciousness that they began to develop doing that, they had the sense to repudiate. So, so what Swamiji then talks about here is he talks, first he talks about being able um, to develop, move from conscious mind thinking to superconscious thinking. That's the way that uh, spiritual progress is often gauged. And then he defines the difference between what, how the conscious mind relates to the world and how the superconscious relates to the world. These are whole other full classes that we can give. But he des- describes 
that the conscious mind has a tendency to analyze, to break things into pieces, to weigh one piece against the other, and then try to come to a a conclusion sort of by weighing all the options and see which way they go. He said the difficulty with conscious mind thinking, which is intellect and analytically based, is it tends to see the world and situations in terms of their fragmented parts. Well, this job is, has a good location, and that one has a nice office, and this one you know, has better furniture, and that one has more status, and this one my father will like. And you sort of get all these different pieces put together, but at the end of it, oftentimes, you just have a sort of fragmented sense that you can't then reassemble. Um, it's, it's kind of a joke with children, you know, having the capacity to take things apart, but then being, not being able to put them together. The conscious mind is sometimes a little bit like a child. We think we're really bright because we can take it all apart. I remember once a, a man wrote Swami Kriyananda a letter at a time when we were having difficulty with a certain department in the community. And the man wrote what I thought was an extremely intelligent analysis of what the the drawbacks of the situation were and why we were having so much difficulty. I thought it was a pretty good letter. And I was Swami's secretary at the time, so I read the letter, and then I handed it to him, and I sort of handed it to him with this, like, positive attitude. He read the letter, he crumpled it up in his hand, and he dropped it on the floor. He said, anybody can describe a problem to me. I want somebody who has a solution. And it was a very interesting moment for me because I realized how often I equated intelligence with the ability to analyze it and say all the things that were wrong. Now, the superconscious mind has a completely different way of going at things. It it sees, just by its nature, it sees the whole reality. He sees how all the separate pieces always come back into a whole. Now, you have to understand the nature of creation because it's very interesting when you think about it. And this is the simple elbow-rocking image that I've used really often, but it's so true. Everything begins from the center of stillness, even within our own selves. The origin point, which we were meditating on a moment ago, is a center point of stillness. We come to the point of complete stillness in meditation. Our thoughts are are at least at bay, if not stopping. Um, The heartbeat can actually stop. The breath will, will, will slow there's a sense of timelessness. There's no feeling of pressure or, or fragmentation. We just get, everything gets quieter and quieter and quieter on multiple levels, quieter and quieter. Edwin was talking earlier about meditating really early in the morning. The advantage of meditating at night or early in the morning is there aren't as many people running around being frantic. And the whole universe, literally, the whole universe is just quieter because all those thoughts are not roiling around, we're much more sensitive to them than we may first realize. So we come to this point of stillness. And then literally, what happens after we get up from our meditation? We begin to get active again, don't we? The mind begins to move. Oh, well, now my meditation's over. I think I'll go have breakfast, and then maybe also I'll exercise, and then I'll have to go to work. And after I get home from work, and pretty soon, you know, we're just in movement, physically, mentally, emotionally, all the different things that were at bay are suddenly with us again. Well, the whole of creation is the same on a, of course, magnificent scale. God is a point of stillness, and the vibration of spirit begins to move. This is the Om vibration, sound and light, and it begins to oscillate, and it creates the illusion of the material world. 
And the more involved we are in the material world, the more we're involved in the oscillating energy. And the nature of that is that it's always dual. There's always two sides to everything. Because it comes from a point of stillness, and to create the illusion at all, it has to go both ways. This is why we can never really get a situation that's externally based that will just stay there. Because by its very nature, it just won't. You know, I've, been, I've, I've been very much enjoying lately being older. There was the transition period where I had to sort of, where I was shocked by the body getting older. Now I'm quite comfortable with it, and now it's really begun to, you know, sort of go over the hill and down the other side. And it's just astonishing to just sort of stand as yourself in the middle and watch it happen all around you. And the spiritual goal of it, obviously, as Swami himself describes himself, he said he feels utterly ageless. I mean, ageless beyond just not body conscious, but ageless in an infinite sense, just utterly ageless, because we are just that point of stillness in the center. Well, the closer we come to that point of stillness, the more we see that all the opposites are resolving into one manifested reality. I mean, what that means is that when we look out with too much of a conscious mind, we see the contradictions. But when we look out with a superconscious awareness, we see how all those contradictions are just an illusion. Then, in fact, it's just one energy just vibrating in slightly different ways. It's a, it's a question of whether you look at the, at the waves and just see them moving like this, or whether you look at the ocean and watch the ocean rising up as the waves. If all you can see is the waves then you think that their up and downness is the truth. If you're standing far enough back or deep enough in, however you want to use it, to see that it's the ocean rising, then you realize, well, there's not even a contradiction here. Now, in a very practical way, the more we can be in tune with that superconscious point where all the dualities resolve, the more even when we look out on the dual world, it will inherently speak to us of the resolution of those conflicts. Now, Swami puts it in a really simple way. The, the, the superconscious mind is solution-oriented. It's oriented to seeing how things resolve, where the conscious mind is oriented to seeing how they all fragment apart. And just that little bit of an orientation, now we have to add into this this understanding, thoughts are universal, not individual. We do not create our thoughts, we merely attract them. We get on the magnetic wavelength where they exist and then they come to us. I have watched so many times through the years with Swamiji that we'll find ourselves, you know, various ones who have to make various decisions in the community, we'll just find ourselves with no really good answers to certain situations. Who should be, what personnel should be in what places, how do we make this project work, and will bring those, those questions that really bright minds have been contemplating for some time. And he'll become just very calm, and then he'll just make a suggestion, often without any, you know, without any time passing. Just, he'll just tune in to the fact that where there is a problem, there has to be a resolution, because everything resolves. And then he'll make a few suggestions that, as soon as he makes them, it's like, why couldn't anyone else think of this? This is so obvious. But because we were oriented towards seeing the difficulties, we literally could not see the resolution. Because he was oriented towards seeing the resolution, it just presented itself to him. It's a very simple but extraordinarily powerful approach. And Swami adds 
One more thing to this is he talks about the importance of really what he's saying is having faith in the superconscious potential to give you a resolution. He puts it like expect a solution. When you approach a question, just expect that an answer will be given to you. You don't necessarily know what that answer will be, but just expect that it will be given to you. And he says, um, I love this, don't wrestle with the problems that the question itself poses for you. Now, what he's saying by that is, let's say, oh, I need a job. Where am I going to find a job? Now, the problems that that pose are is, you know, who am I going to call? What am I going to wear? What happens if I can't find a job? I've been looking for such a long time. The question itself may bring you all of these other conscious mind pieces that will all start rattling around opposing each other. He says, don't wrestle with those. Just say, I need a job. There is a solution. And we go forward with that perfect faith in the power, well, the, the whole affirmation, which I'm half saying, is the power of omnipresent good to bring me what I need at the time I need it. And we use our energy. It's not even that we don't solve the problem of who to call and what to wear and all of those things, but we do it oriented toward the fact that this is all bringing me a solution rather than orienting it toward an increase in the sense of problems. So that's the first thing he, he recommends to us is that whatever we do, we need to be moving always more towards superconsciousness. Now, he's talking about all the work that we do. Whatever work we're doing, we need to see it as an opportunity to expand from conscious into superconscious. That's the first definition of how our work can be spiritually beneficial to us. And then he goes and he starts talking. Um, about other attitudes that help us be in tune with superconsciousness and help us work in a way that we're doing what we ought to be doing. The first attitude he suggests is willingness. And willingness is one of those marvelous um, sort of key words that, that's part of the Ananda lexicon. And it, it's not only meaningful in itself, but it's making a, a um, distinction between the fact that so many of us tend to think in terms of a, think about accomplishment in terms of willpower. I need more willpower. People often say that. I need more willpower to do this. I need more willpower to do that. And in fact, one may need more willpower, but the idea of willpower always has inherent in it, it's almost as even when I talk about the words, you see, I clench my fists. You clench your fists. There's going to be this little bit of strain involved, and there's I actually really want to go in another direction, but I'm going to use my willpower to go in this direction. Just even the very word itself divides us against ourselves. A friend of mine once was having a, a, just a serious mental moment about things, and um, it was all about willpower. And I finally managed to get her attention and sort of made her stop. She thought I was going to say, she didn't want me to speak because she was certain she knew what she was going to say, and she was totally wrong. But what I said to her is, I've never seen it help you when you divide against your own self. And so the word willpower has that slight danger that there's the good me and the bad me, and we're fighting with each other. And that is not a superconscious unitive approach. It's already identifying yourself with only being half good enough, and the other half you're trying to get. I spent a great deal of my first 30 or 40 years of life imagining that there was a much better version of me 
that just out of sheer nastiness I was holding back. (laughs) And that if I just continued to be mad enough at me, then that perfect me would emerge from the closet where it was apparently hiding. I mean, it was just completely insane when you really think about it. But it was the subconscious text that I was always working with. That I was always divided and always a little mad at me for not being the me I thought I should be. When horrible and also wonderful day, I realized that this was it. That there really was no better one hidden anywhere. And that whatever we had was already in front of you. What you see is what you get. Whoa, that was a big moment. Now, I turned it into a positive thing by realizing, you know, she wasn't so bad. And, but stopping that war was a tremendous release of energy. So, instead of willpower, the first word Swami uses is willingness. And willingness is the positive expression of willpower. Because willpower implies I don't want to, but I'll make myself to do it. Willingness says I want to do it. I'm willing to do this. And if we're going to have to do it anyway, if we can just turn ourselves into the fact that I want to be willing to do it, And if we cultivate, really, an attitude of willingness. So many of these things are simply bad habits. We just, oh, oh, I have to go to the store today. Oh, I have to go to the store today. Well, today is laundry day. Oh, today is the day I have to do the laundry. We're going to do the laundry anyway. It's just a question of how crabby we're going to be while we're doing it. And that's partly what Swami's talking about. I used to live in an apartment in San Francisco before I went to Ananda Village, which was, of course, 40 years ago now. And, I mean, I just lived in this apartment and have a washing machine. And, you know, if you live in an apartment in San Francisco, you don't have a washing machine, you have to carry your laundry out to the laundromat. That's just how it works. There were not even any laundries in the building. And I had to put this big hod of clothing in a sheet and walk down the... But, you know, I had to do it. And it just seemed... I, I wasn't really that it evolved in yoga, but I had a few good instincts. I thought... I just, this is just so stupid. I have to do it. So I might as well be willing to do this. I might as well think this is fun to do. There was just no help whatsoever in being unwilling to do what had to be done anyway. Swami takes it another step by saying, don't reject any possible solution. If you're trying, he's talking also about problem solving. Don't reject any possible solution um, because it, you may end up denying what you are going to end up having to do in the end. In other words, don't prejudice against yourself against the possible. Just be willing. Um, Swamiji then uh, was talking about uh, the incident. He refers to the incident himself when he was a child and everybody was slinging mud and he found it so offensive and was just so repelled by it that the boys, the other young boys immediately saw him as the perfect target and just buried him in mud. (laughs) And he says, as an adult and as a yogi later, he realized, you know, if he couldn't be totally enthusiastic, at least be neutral. Just be calmly neutral about it. Well, might not be my favorite thing, but well, there you have it. In our Festival of Light every week, we talk about, we have this phrase which is so helpful Whereas in the past, suffering and sorrow was the coin of man's redemption. But for us now, that payment has been exchanged for calm, acceptance, and joy. It's such a magnificent phrase. Calm, acceptance, and joy leads to willingness. So in our work, in the work that we do, in our choice of work, we should try to find something that we feel willing to do. And if we're more naturally willing, that's better. 
But we, even if not, we have to cultivate that attitude within us. Another attitude, he says, that's important to the selection and pursuit of the right course in life is calmness. And then he speaks about the fact that some work by its very nature is agitating. You know, if you're doing something that's very, very um, uh, competitive and people are, are, people are excited when they're doing it, now that doesn't mean it can't be high energy. Like some people, for example, find kitchen work in a restaurant just too agitating. A friend of mine spent a long time training to be a restaurant chef, but as soon as he got in there, he realized that this was not for him because it's very high energy and everything has to keep moving. But some people actually enjoy the high energy, but they can bring to a focus in that high energy a sense of great calmness. Um, having to, had to work in kitchens a lot, um, doing uh, community kind of cooking, never business kind of cooking, you know, there's a certain wonderful kind of calmness that just sets in when you have a huge project in front of you and a lot of people working. You just focus in and you just keep moving through it. You, you're willing to do it and you're calm about it. But then other kind of work, and Swami uses the floor of a commodities trading center or whatever happens when all the, everybody's screaming and trying to get the better of one another and certain things like that, they just might be inherently for you just too agitating to your system. Because if you live in that kind of an environment day after day, it's very hard to pull your awareness back. So he says, you know, think about it and and try to find um, work that in some way or another produces calmness within you. Now, don't, however, look for work that's so low energy. Don't mistake low energy for calmness. Calmness is not necessarily as I was saying about working in a kitchen, it's, it doesn't mean that you're not dynamic. You can be totally concentrated in working at the absolute limit of your abilities, but still it can be inherently calm for you because you're focused and you're doing it. Like often rock climbers or people who do really dangerous physical things that require complete and total concentration find that in such moments a profound sense of calmness will come over them. Often people who do heroic things in battles, which is about the least calm thing you can think about, soldiers and others, they'll find that a very deep sense of calmness will come over them. It's just like right in the middle of everything, they're able to just keep that focus. So you don't want to, as I say, mistake calmness for low energy. But you do want to do something that in some way doesn't um, blow out your nervous system. Because over the long rhythm of your life, you don't want to just trade a paycheck for your peace of mind. It's just not worth doing. Um, And then he also talks about the fact that whatever you do, and this is the antidote to calmness is low energy, you should seek to develop your ability to do it. You You should imagine ways in which you can constantly make it better, and you should do your best to become very skillful. He says, not for the sake of pride, but really because that's what superconsciousness is like. Imagine everything in the universe resolves into perfection, and if we are just being sloppy and inattentive to what we're doing, and so these are all, you know, what kind of, well, how do you, what's the, how does he call it, what should your line of work be? Well, whatever your line of work should be, it should be one that, that calls upon you to hone your abilities, to sharpen your talents, to increase your concentration and your capacity to express more and more subtle abilities, whether they're physical, mental, or spiritual. And in order to do that, you have to pay attention. 
I, I was, it was very interesting for me. I, I still sew a little bit, and I get involved in various things that involve sewing. Sewing was my first spiritual teacher. I was 10 years old when my mother sent me out for sewing classes. My sewing teacher's name was Mrs. Taylor. Of course, she was born for the job. And the, what I learned about sewing, which I had never actually understood before, is that if you cut corners, you have bad results. It was just really as simple as that. And if you, if you concentrate and really do it right, then, it, it, then you get what you want. But if you just think, oh, I'll just do it like this, I'll do it like that, it all just accumulates and you have a mess later on. And I've, I've uh, observed in life, you know, how, how much the, sometimes one just wants to um, not put out quite enough energy. Just imagine that it'll be okay if I don't put out quite enough energy. I'm not talking about being a compulsive perfectionist because there's a point at which it is enough energy. But, but it depends on why you're not wanting to put out the energy. You know, if it's because I've made a conscious decision that this is really an adequate result or it's just, oh, I just don't really want to concentrate enough. So Swami tells us, whatever line of work you're in, try to become good at it. He said not, not to be proud but just to be able to feel that inner satisfaction that I've done it. And then he says, um, your motives are more important than your deeds. And by this he's saying, um, pay attention to what your intentions are. You know, sometimes we have good intentions, but circumstances don't allow us. You know, for example, we might be, let's say, working in a factory or a manufacturing plant, and your own sense of perfectionism just isn't... um, isn't shared by everyone. You just can't make it come out the best way that is possible. But nonetheless, you still do your part as well as you can. But if in your doing your part, you're trying to show everybody else up and trying to prove to them that they're all stupid and you're the only one who knows, you know, that's a very bad motive. And so if you're ever working and find yourself in your work where you consistently have a bad motive for what you're doing, you're trying to hurt someone else or be better than someone else or, or, or slow down something or, or get back at someone. It's a very, you have to be, pay very close attention. It's a very sensitive motive. I've been, just today actually, I was reflecting on certain things. It, it really, the ego gets in there. And it, you have to be very, very vigilant about the purity of your heart in everything that you do. You know, just how much love am I really expressing? How much kindness? How much true respect for my brothers and sisters? And that's, that's the most important, the purity of heart expressed by what your intentions are is a tremendously important part of whatever work you're doing. And, and it, it just can't be emphasized enough because otherwise, if you spend your, all your time at work having these petty attitudes, you know, gradually over days and weeks and months and years, your heart just begins to shrivel. And it becomes just a complete habit of your consciousness. And it's not something you can just sort of, oh, once I get out of this terrible job, away from these awful people, I'll just feel differently. It it becomes too much of a habit and we get old, we freeze into that. I have an elderly relative now whose mind, whose brain doesn't work that well anymore. You know, because his intelligence isn't what it used to be, he does things that are a little funny. 
But it's so interesting to me to see that all of the habits of his lifetime are the the substance of his age-related dementia now. And a lot of his bad habits of a lifetime are the subject of his age-related dementia. And it's I love visiting him because it's really an incentive (laughs) to clean mental house, mental and emotional house, because you really don't want to to get stuck in these things because of of the physiology of your brain. I was very impressed with my own father, who the last couple of years of his life, his his brain stopped working properly. And uh, his... Uh, when he couldn't really worry about anything anymore, I really understood the inherent sweetness of his nature. Uh, because his, he, even sometimes he'd been a little bit of a, a Virgo annoyance with his concentration on too many details. But I really began to understand how, how, how good his motive was, in a very real sense. Because all that was left was the impulse of his heart, and he couldn't filter it through this highly intelligent Virgo-esque mind anymore. It was very interesting and just, it's a very good reminder. Um, let's see. Swami does this little diversion here talking about a couple of instances in which great masters encouraged people to do things that led to their demise. That story of uh, the man who came to Paramahansa Yogananda and wanted Master to help him lead a violent revolution against the English in India. Master, of course, declined because um, first he said India will be freed by peaceful means, and second, he wasn't inclined toward violence. But he more or less encouraged this man to go forward and do this thing that he felt strongly to do, which was to smuggle in armaments and conceivably, you know, take violent action against the English. And the man was caught and executed. And Swamiji asked afterwards, why did you encourage him to do this? And if you knew he was going to be executed, and the master just said quite calmly, oh, it was his karma. Meaning it was his destiny to take that risk and follow that course and be killed for it. And uh, Swamiji also expands on that story a little bit here, saying that master also saw that the man was really set on that course. And his asking master what his advice or opinion was was a superficial request. Um, Swami Kriyananda often will answer people according to, to how much they're really asking him. Makes it a little subtle when you ask him for advice because if you really don't want to know, then you won't necessarily find out. And that was apparently the case of this man. But Swamiji takes the, the, that story as an example and he says merely because someone dies does not mean that they took the wrong course because it just may have been a necessary karmic lesson. He says the masters are, don't feel, I love the way he put it, to a spiritual math- master, death is not something to be avoided at all costs. <laughs> it's, it's an odd way to put it, but that's the truth of it, isn't it? So in other words, now, I mean, we're not talking about death, but if something has to be done, we just have to do it. We can't just think always in terms about what might happen. I mean, that's the more practical lesson from this. Okay. Then Swamiji says, whatever path you follow in life and whatever work you do, always try to relate it to a broader reality. He says, even if your job may be something quite simple like selling groceries. And then he goes on to say, try to take 
the biggest possible view of what you're doing. So he says, okay, you're a grocery clerk. I mean, you can be just a grocery clerk. And you can learn the, the, how much you have to know, and that's all you have to know. But he uses this as an example. He said, why not really study up on the subject of food? Find out a lot about nutrition. Find out where your foodstuffs come from. Figure out which are really the best ones. And then he, he says, it's very sweet, try to know more, if possible, than your customers themselves know. And then you're always in a position to see, oh, I'm not just checking out groceries, but I'm helping people to find very good food. I'm part of the, the uh, you know, the, the great survival of the species, if it might be, this entire industry of growing food that comes out to be selling food. I'm right in the middle of that. And instead of just sort of being there, being a clerk like this. Um, when I was, uh, I used to work retail. This was like when in my late teens, I used to work in retail stores. And it was always so interesting because at least, you know, retail Retail sales can be very dull if, if it's not busy. And I was there, and in some of the departments, um, let me just think how to say this exactly. In the, I worked for a time in better dresses for older women. And uh, it was extremely enjoyable to me because the women who came in were women of substance. And they had a, a serious interest in quality garments. Prior to that, I had worked in the junior clothes department where everything in there was junk and the girls were just young girls my own age, just superficially inclined to just follow fashion and I just couldn't, I couldn't bear it. I did horrible in that department. It was supposed to be the plum department for a teenage worker and I was just an absolute dead loss. But then they put me, you know, in this other place where what we were working with was quality, quality stuff and, and people who are more settled in their realities and the broader reality, so to speak, of their personalities and their lives and the, the designs that were coming in and so on. It just made the whole thing so much more than just standing at a clerk and just, you know, taking the money like this. And then if, you're, if you have any opportunity to work with people, you can also just enter into the world of those people. Like, what is it that these people really need from me? And then the desire to know more and enables you to serve people better. It's as simple as that. You become willing to increase your skill and to relate what you're doing to a broader reality. The reason we're bored when we're bored is because we just make our focus so narrow that our brains have no place to go in it. Almost everything can become more interesting. But then he also says, in choosing or developing work, look for, some, look for enough variety to keep you energetic and interested. He said, don't just look for a comfortable niche. That's a very interesting way to put it. I mean, sometimes people say, sometimes I see those people in the toll booths or something like that, and I think, wow, what a job, you know, just day after day. And then every once in a while, you'll see someone with an iPod in their ears, and you'll see them dancing the whole time they're doing it, you know, or something like that, just finding some way to make it more interesting or really engaging every single person who comes through. But... The, the point he's trying to say is don't think, oh, I've got such a comfortable job here. I don't have to work very much. Nobody asks anything of me. I get left alone. I get to sleep. I get to have two beers at lunch and nobody even notices in the afternoon. I mean, from a certain way of thinking, that's the best job you could get. But, but Swamiji really warns us, no, if you really want to make your work, if it's the work that's right for you, it's because it's moving you from conscious to superconscious, not from conscious to subconscious. 
So it, it's also a question of, of, of the definition of what is good. Is it good to be comfortable or is it good to be ever-expanding? So he's asking us to just, you know, make our lives from the beginning something that has the potential to help us to grow. Um, then he has a few words to say about just making your money passively. He says, I encourage you not to only make your money from investments. It's a very interesting, he touches on this every so often. He says, investments are for the investor himself a dead energy. You are paying others to be creative. I know those who are creative about investing would contradict that, but what he's really saying is, get into work where you can apply your energy directly. It's, it's, It's an important point. I know many people want to develop, quote, passive streams of income, and just from a strictly financial planning point of view, you know, that sounds like a good idea. But Swamiji is always trying us to get us to understand that the real wealth that we have is our own creative energy. And in other um, lessons in this, you may recall, when he talks about how the great delusion of money is that we imagine that if we have money itself, then we have security. And then he talks about how, however, that... Um, that sense of security can be eroded because it's only vicarious. As long as we hold this thing, then I am secure. But if our real sense of wealth is our own creative energy, then we can always feel very secure because my own my wealth is me. And often very successful people go up and down many times in their successes, but they don't they don't lose heart. Because even if they've lost all their money, their sense of their wealth was never really their money. Their sense of their wealth was their own ability to generate creative energy. So he's encouraging us here, don't just think about getting yourself again into a passive position. But, but design your work and design your job. And even if you find yourself in a position where you have a lot of passive wealth, don't make your work just sitting there having that passive wealth. I was amused... I was impressed when I, and I know very little about this, I, one of the founders of Apple, the man named Wozniak, somebody in our community had a cat named Wozniak, that's how I knew. But he apparently, and I believe this is correct, just cashed out of that really early and became a school teacher. <laughs> because that's what he really wanted to do. And, and once he had all that money, I might be incorrect about this, but this is what I believe I read about him that he just got very rich doing all that, but it, it wasn't for him, as it was for Steve Jobs, apparently, the source of total creativity. So he just took that money and just went somewhere else and did something that really fed his heart after that. Now, true or not, it's apocryphal, but it's a good, um, it's a good thing to keep into your mind and keep in your mind. Okay. He raises one more question here, which he doesn't really answer. When selecting a line of work... Consider the karmic debts remaining for you to work out. And then he says, you're probably not going to be able to answer that yourself. You're going to have to go to a guru, find a good guru to answer that for you, which are not so easy to find good gurus, as he puts it. But he does say many people do have at least some intuition as to what may be blocking you. And, you know, it, it's interesting. Some people who, who go into school teaching, for example, I mentioned it, to take care of small children, they have a sense in their heart that maybe they've been inattentive to children in their lives or they owe, they owe a debt to children. As a, as a public speaker, as I am, and always having to talk to people about the spiritual teachings, 
I sometimes have the feeling that I have misused, misused my persuasive abilities in the past and persuaded people to unwise courses of action. So I have to intently and desperately try to persuade them to write courses of action. It really does sometimes feel like a karmic debt to me. I didn't choose this work because of it, but you know, there's this um, learning how to, the right use of the gifts that we have, to use them for the right purpose. And sometimes we have certain gifts and we do really feel, I have to just keep using this until in some subtle way something's balanced. Swami Kriyananda himself said that one of the reasons he's had to persuade people so much to have faith in God is because he himself had many doubts in past lives. And it's like having resolved all those doubts, he has to to sort of make the world a place of faith now. I don't think he really has karmic debts because I think his karma is balanced. But it's just an interesting point to contemplate. And sometimes we really feel, we, we owe maybe somebody in some incarnation really helped you in a certain way with psychiatric care or medical care. And one just feels one has to give back, even if you don't really remember exactly. It's a very interesting uh, aspect of it. Okay, let's um, take a short break before we finish this. Okay? So just take five minutes, and then we'll come back and finish the lesson. The other side of the karmic debt that you have to pay is to ask yourself the question, what kind of good karma do I need to accumulate? And so then sometimes you can figure that out just by apparently looking at what your bad impulses are. Swamiji mentions here, if you feel the impulse, for example, to deprive people of things, then you need to find work in which you have the opportunity to be really generous to them. Um, But another way, another thing he's saying is, pay attention during your life and just see you know, what your, what your inclinations are, and then put out a very strong effort to balance them. <coughs> Even the desire to acquire, Swamiji was saying, can be spiritualized by buying things to, for others to buy. For example, my friend Paula, one of the reasons, she just, you know, loved beautiful things, and in many different times in her life, she was in a retail environment, and she was the buyer for the retail store, and she would just buy many beautiful things because she wanted, she liked to have them and she liked buying them, but then she would bring them in and sell them to others. I, uh, she, she taught me a lot about how to dress and how to be more attractive because she was very instinctively good at that. And for many years, some of the nicest things I had were things that I had walked into the store where she was the work, working and she said, I found something that you're going to have to buy from me, <laughs> you know, because it was. And she'd gone out with me in mind or she'd seen something, she said, I know that's just, Asha's going to love that. And so she would bring it in and wait for me to come in and then give it to me to buy. It was her store. She wasn't, these weren't gifts. But it's all just like, okay, I have an acquisitive nature. I have an attachment to beautiful things. I like to go out and shop and spend money. Well, let's just find a way to turn that karma in the right direction. I'll do what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it for others. Or the opposite way, um, if you have a tendency, as he was saying, to try to get ahead of others than try to always be supportive of others. In other words, don't just be passive. Don't just sort of allow our qualities to just roll on and think somehow they're going to take care of themselves. We need calm willingness to be able to really um, shift our consciousness. And then our work and our life, at the end of every workday, no matter what we were doing, whatever our actual work was, will have been working on our consciousness. 
And again, he's saying also in choosing your work, if, you, if this is a certain kind of good karma you need to acquire, if one is selfish and hoards money and you can go to work for a charity or a philanthropy organization where you're able to always be, be, be passing money out to people in need and seeing the benefit of that, you can sort of accumulate a certain kind of good karma and good karmic attitude that'll help you. So, you know, in, in my position in the life that I've had to lead, I've had to counsel a lot of people. And it's been uh, just a tremendous blessing because I have been very judgmental in my life. Especially when I was younger, I just had a tendency to just be so impatient with everybody who wasn't exactly like me. And then I just got put into this position where I would have to, I have had to just sit very calmly in front of people and really understand, my, 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 how beautifully different you are. How completely, sincerely, and utterly, surprisingly, something else you are. And just sort of gradually, you know, the, um, the, the inclination to be judgmental has been balanced by the fact that I have to help people according to their own reality. And so gradually you can see how one works against the other and you finally come into a state of karmic balance. I mean, I have a tremendous appreciation for individuals now that 30 years ago I just couldn't relate to at all because the work I've been in has forced me to do that. It's been very, very positive in that respect. You know, so we're just talking about all the different ways in which your life can balance you out. Um, so, and, and then he makes reference to what we talked about earlier about looking at your early childhood and seeing, you know, what inclinations you have. You don't always end up following them, but it's really fun. It's fun to think about it sometimes. I, I probably, when I talked about that other lesson, I, um, I remember what a passion I had for being a little ballerina and how marvelous a dancer I thought I was, you know, compared to, in fact, what, you know, how little children are. I read somewhere one woman asserted, and I don't know how profoundly true this is, but it was a beautiful thought. She said a lot of times when little children are doing something with so much seriousness, you know, mommy, watch me dance, watch me jump high, watch me throw the ball, that in their own minds they're actually living out another incarnation in which they really were skilled at that. And their own sense of self, and because they're not really objective, small children don't have a lot of objective reality, when they make this little gesture, they really are standing on some big stage and perhaps being wildly applauded for the the grace that they moved. Um, They just don't know where they are yet. I have that memory about making this little mud sculpture. I mean, I have no inclination in this life to be a visual artist or else it was just taken out of me so fast of that kind of arts, but I remember making this mud sculpture. I still remember it. I must have been four. I really think it was a snowman. I think it was like three mud balls on top of itself. But my relationship to that piece of mud was so intense, and my pride in it, and I wanted my mother to bronze it, essentially, but, you know, she couldn't quite see what I was seeing, so she, you know, we dried it and we kept it, but she couldn't really bronze it for me, which is what I wanted her to do, or fire it in the oven. I think I wanted to put it in the oven. And she really had to explain to me that we really couldn't do that, that it wouldn't come out the way I thought it would if we put it in the oven. But see how vividly I remember it? And I think I was four. Strange, isn't it? How these things are all so sort of in us. But sometimes if we're just casting about and wondering, who am I and who am I meant to be? You can sort of go back and find those things and 
and see if there's threads that you can bring out. And it may not necessarily be that one should be a sculptor, but maybe making things with your hands is more important to you than you might, might have thought it would be, or would be more satisfying to you than, than your intellectual training since has told you. And even if it doesn't turn out to be your, your work vocation, it can still end up being something that you need to follow in your life. It's very interesting. Now Swami then talks about a few ways of living more in the superconscious moment. And he, he says some fascinating, just simple ideas like avoid setting unnecessary and useless precedents in your life. That's the phrase. He said, live creatively in the present. Now, sometimes one will observe in one's life, well, I always get up and I always have an egg and a piece of toast. And then I have 15 minutes that I do this and then I go out and do that. And Now, to a certain extent, order and rhythm and even habit is useful because as Master said, then you don't have to think about everything all the time. But he says, avoid unnecessary and useless precedents. So what he's really trying to uh, tell us to do, because again, you see, if we allow ourselves to be just come, become too fixed in this idea that this is how it has to be, then we just completely lose the capacity to be creative and spontaneous in the moment. And once we start losing the capacity to relate to the moment, but every moment has to be fit into the moment before by following the same pattern, our minds begin to sink lower and lower away from our superconsciousness. So even though routine is valuable, we don't ever want to really have in our mind that this is the only way I can do it, and this is the way I have to do it, and my security comes from being able to follow this routine. So you, you see that in people. It's very unfortunate. They become so nervous when they have house guests. It's just so difficult to have house guests because all of a sudden things are out of order. And, and people can't have guests in their home. They can't have their family come and visit them. They can't entertain for the holidays because this is how it has to be. And you're messing it up. So we have to ask ourselves between what is an efficient or a comforting routine and the necessity to have things a certain way because we don't have a, a calm ability to just be in the now. See, a habit and a precedent is all based on it has to be this way. But if we're just living in the now without any sense of past and future, it can be any old way at all because there's nothing, there's nothing to relate it to. Time and space are, are happen to us once we move out of the now, you see. It's a very interesting point. And then he, um, he talked about Dr. Lewis, one of Master's disciples, claimed that Master never did anything according to habit. Swamiji says he's always doubted the actual truth of that because Master himself said that habits are a pleasant subconscious support so that every time you see your shoelaces, you don't have to start over from scratch and figure out how you can make a bow out of those, that certain things are just helpful. But what, what Swami then goes on to describe is an ideal personality that Master had, which is that he was always fresh in the moment. And you could never predict exactly how he would respond because he didn't just, as Swami warns us, just say, well, in situations like this, this is what I always say. And then Swami talks about being a counselor specifically. When people bring problems to you, don't answer them according to what you always say. He said, be sufficiently in the moment to find out who you're dealing with and what's true right now. And he talked about how Master was just always entirely there in, in the present reality 
And what even when, and this is, he, Swami doesn't explain this, but I know it from Swami Kriyananda, even when his response would have been the response you have seen before, it's never offered as the response that you've seen before. It's always in the moment fresh. And Swamiji uses as the example the phrase, I love you. He said, people can say it over and over and over again, but if in the moment it's a genuine response to the realities that's happening right now, it never feels like, oh, this is what I always say. It's what's really happening. And so him, Dr. Lewis, describing masters being without habits meant that he always related fresh to everything that was happening. And now that freshness is another part of this, which is if we get in our mind and we say, oh, here we come again. You know, here I'm going to go to work again. It's going to be all those same old people. Here I'm going to sit at this job again. She's going to be the same old thing again. But it isn't the same old thing because this is an entirely new day. And every single person and everything about your situation is different because time has passed. Things have happened. You just have no idea what this situation is. And even if it's remarkably similar to the day before, your own consciousness can be fresh in it, just completely new. And it, it's, a, it's a great thing to be able to live that way. That's how children are. And that's why children are so easily entertained. Because just there they are. Oh, look, a puddle! And they don't just think, oh, a puddle. You know, rain, rain, rain. They think, a puddle! And that's just this tremendous adventure to see what the puddle has to offer them. And, you know, partly they're just stupid. You know, they don't have, they're just dumb. They don't have enough to going on in their brains to know that it's just a puddle. But the other side of it is that they don't have all this, all these preconceived and useless precedents in their head. They're just able to be right there in that moment and what's in front of me is just a pure delight. So, so habits, bad habits, mental habits can also kill us. And Swami is very strong. And he also says, then talking about groups, he says... Um, Rules might be described as group habits and it becomes a way for people not to have to really relate to each other and not have to put out the energy to actually be in connection with each other. We just follow these group habits. We don't really speak. We don't really look into each other's eyes. We don't really find out what's going on. We just have our rules of the way we relate to each other. So he really warns, Yogananda said, in terms of a group, and now this is also if you're in a work position where you're a person who might be making the rules. You know, try to avoid useless and unnecessary precedents. He said, don't make too many rules because it takes all the heart and spirit out of the thing. Only certain notices can go on the bulletin board and they have to be taken to the head office and approved before and the piece of paper should be eight and a half by six and not larger than and only an index card and nothing. You know, it's just like, you can't, then you can't breathe. You can't do anything. Everybody, everything's all defined. Maybe you live in a world where it's already too late. But you know, within, within your own little sphere, just keep it as light and as loose as you can. As, as much as you can influence, let things be run and operate according to the magnetism of human relationships. Ananda has really very few rules. We have a flow of energy that we all work with, and there's a certain familiarity to it that you find it all over the world. But it's not based on rules. It's based on magnetism. It's based on a genuine relationship with one another and a genuine habit of being in the moment with one another and then that magnetism sort of brings things out 
And you don't really have to make rules because you're all working on, this, uh, on developing a certain kind of magnetism and then the harmony just follows. And if it doesn't happen to follow, it's very easy to sort of retreat back and figure out how to make it work. Master himself, it was sort of um, not a very respectful, but even when he was alive, people would sometimes talk about how he wasn't really such a good organizer. And Swami himself, he said, Swami Kriyananda said, he sort of kind of bought into that for a long time. And then once he started, at one point he started meditating on it much more deeply and he realized that Master was a brilliant organizer. But he organized entirely through magnetism. He was able to, to keep, you know, the, the fresh, connected energy with projects and people and everything was, was held in a very harmonious, forward-moving pattern. But it was all held, <coughs> held by that magnetism. And of course, that's how Swamiji has worked with Ananda, and that's how Swamiji has trained all of us. We just constantly bring ourselves back to attunement with the same reality, and then everything else works. In our particular colony, we've always had a, a tremendous strength with Sunday service. And, and we've worked very hard to keep Sunday services fresh and dynamic, and so that people will come because they want to come. And because we all come together on Sunday mornings like that, um, you know, the, the whole of the community, it's sort of like everything else just runs. Because we do the festival together, we have the blessing service together, we meditate together, we sing together, and then we're just sort of all in the same wavelength. Then we go another seven days and everything just kind of works. People just understand and move. I, if, we, if we didn't have that repeating period of attunement, I think that we would have much more difficulty manifesting, getting along, progressing individually. And in, in business situations, you can't necessarily have a festival of light every week. But you can do things to sort of increase attunement. And if you're an individual working in it, you know, even if you're not a leader, the leader of any situation is the most magnetic person. And that person really can be the, the, the one who sweeps or delivers the mail or uh, a secretary who brings the coffee. That, that there's uh, always a magnetic heart to a situation, if the situation has heart at all. And that person will just create the magnetism that defines the whole situation. And you don't have to have a leadership position to do that. A a, a woman, a friend of mine, was. uh, we were doing a project together, and nobody really liked to work with her because she was just too critical, and she wasn't much fun. And she liked to have power, and she was very annoyed. And I, I was in a position to designate people's positions. So she came to me and wanted to really um, persuade me to make it a requirement that nothing could happen unless it went through her, essentially. And I tried to explain to her, my dear, I could make that the biggest requirement in the world, and if you're not really serving them, (laughs) nobody's going to come to you. (laughs) Because you have to have the magnetism. And in the context of Ananda, the leaders are always the people who have magnetism. Whatever their position, it doesn't make any difference. Look around where you work, you'll see it's exactly the same. Become a person of magnetism, you become a person of influence. That's how it works. Now, let me think if there's anything else that really needs to be said. Um, Swamiji also talks just very importantly about try to live more in the moment in attunement with God and make asking God to guide you a fundamental part of what you're doing. You know, don't, don't ever forget to ask. 
Because if we don't ask, we never receive. And he said, even if you don't feel that you have a lot of capacity to receive guidance, if we simply begin by making that an everyday part of what we do, then gradually our intuitive ability to receive will also increase. Swamiji gives us a last little piece of advice here that I found so interesting. He said, allow no particular self-image to build up in your own mind. It's a very interesting piece of advice. He said, in other words, he said, if you have a negative self-image, you may need to build up a positive one. But once you have built up a positive one, he said, just don't, don't think about who you are. And above all, don't let others impose upon you a certain image. Oh, well, he's the boss. Oh, well, he's the janitor. Oh, well, he's the cook, you know. Oh, well, he's the handsome one. He's the pretty one. She's the dignified one. She's the funny one. Whatever it might be, he said, as much as possible, just keep yourself away from any such mental pictures. Because if you're one, if you yourself have become hypnotized by that thought, then you've already limited your capabilities by that. And if you, even worse, allow yourself to begin to act in your workplace or in your life in accordance with what other people have defined how you're supposed to be, then once again you've lost the capacity to be inwardly guided in the moment. So if people are imposing thoughts upon you, you sometimes you can't just reject them because it creates too much disharmony, but as quickly as you can put them out of your mind. And don't dwell upon the thought, well, people think that I'm pretty important now. Well, people think I'm the most influential person in the business at this point. Well, now that I have the position of leadership, you know I really have to behave a certain way. Just don't ever allow yourself to do things from the outside in is really what this is about. And then Swamiji talks about the concept of being original, which is a definition he's offered before, but it's so so beautiful. Original is not doing that which has never been done before. Original is moving from your own point of origin. And so that's why this any self-image that becomes built up outside of you, you can't then respond from your own point of origin because you've abandoned it for this external reality. In other words, you be completely sincere in the moment. And his whole comment about asking God for guidance and moving from intuition requires that kind of mental freedom. Otherwise, you, you just don't know what to ask. You can't because you can't separate yourself from conscious mind considerations enough to get into that superconscious flow. He said, also, um, take yourself lightly. Laugh with good cheer at yourself. And then he says, having no self-image to live up to will keep you from becoming a pompous ass, is what he actually writes here. <laughs> In other words, you know, even if you're the big boss, just be a simple child of God. You know, don't feel, well, now I'm the important one who comes in the limousine and all of these things, or the unimportant one. Just take yourself lightly. These are just little roles that we play. These are just costumes that we wear. You know, just be a friend to all. And he said, ask God to inspire you in what you do. Don't ever say, I can't do that. He said, you may not yet know how to do it, but as Swamiji says, if it's a human potential, God can do it through you. And so we do say, I can't do that. And I love, he has this little thing in here. Once he said to someone, oh, I can't do that. And the man, you know, sort of lectured him, don't ever say can't. And somebody said, okay, then I won't do that. (laughs) In other words, I'm not going to. And he was just joking, but take yourself lightly also. But he says, but really have faith, not faith in your egoic ability, but faith in the fact that if I tune in, 
with God's grace and with God's guidance, then I can do it. It's very, um, it's a very subtle and beautiful thing to work with. You know, just here we are, Lord, and I'm really not sure how to do it. So sit by my side and help me, because together I'm sure we can figure this out. And it makes us, it makes life so much more interesting. All doors can be open then. There, there is no limit. There's no stopping us if in our work and in our personal life and all that we're doing, we orient it toward being part of the superconscious flow. Then every day becomes a day in which we get closer and closer to where we're really trying to go, which is, yes, material hap- success will almost always happen, but above all, what will happen is the expansion of consciousness, which is what we're really seeking. So, I think we've taken care of 24. I don't know if there's, it's a little bit late, but if anyone has a question or a comment, I'm willing to take it before we can call it over. Yes, Edna? I got a little confused on the, uh, the willpower and the willingness. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they, you, they always say the more willpower, the more willpower, the more energy. So how can I... The greater the will, the greater the energy. Well, the best way to have willpower is to have willingness. So if you really need to have willpower to do something, try to to orient yourself toward it in such a way that you really want to do it. Okay, just make it fun for yourself. Make it enjoyable. Don't try to to change it from this is something hard that has to be done to something that, that this is something fun that I get to do. And so it's a lot of it is just mental attitude. Because the greater the will, the greater the energy, and the greater the willingness, the greater the energy. Um, you know, um, stress-related, tense, willing will is not going to have nearly the flow that happy willingness will have. Okay? Good to work with that. So that's all about attitude. The result is the same. Okay, great souls. We'll call it an evening. <laughs>